Welcome to Harney's Offshore Litigation Podcast. I am extremely fortunate to be joined today by my colleague from the British Virgin Islands, Peter Ferrer. Welcome, Peter. Hello, Ian. Nice to be back. Where are you at the moment? You're such a man of mystery, such an international man of travel. Where are you calling from? <laughs> Currently in the UK. So first time after the rigours of the last 18 months or so that uh, I actually go and see a client face to face. Good for you. I am only envious. I don't know why I asked. Can I talk to you, Peter, about a case that is really your world? It's a case called Les Ambassadeurs Club or Club Les Ah, a casino in Mayfair, which I'm sure you must frequent frequently. Uh, it's, it's, oh, if it's, only. <laughs> the case is a fascinating English Court of Appeal case, a very strong bench. And bizarrely, all to do with a topic I thought was settled, all to do with the test for freezing injunctions. It's fairly remarkable that this should be a, a matter of contention. Well, the club hasn't had much luck, actually. I mean, this is the second case. <laughs> Last year, there was an, another case against a customer who also dishonoured various checks. And the club tried to get a worldwide freezing order against him. He was also a man of substantial assets and paying his debts. And in that case, Clive Friedman, Mr. Justice Friedman, decided that there wasn't sufficient risk of dissipation because someone doesn't pay their debts. And the fact he had the wherewithal to pay uh, was neither here nor there. It was a fact to be taken into a case, but didn't establish a, a real risk. And then this case really goes a little bit further in terms of explaining the sort of the judicial mind as to how a judge approaches the case. It's quite um, remarkable in terms of the factual background, because Mr. Yu is, is an extremely wealthy man. I think he's probably in the top 150 in China, if that's right. Right. And he was on the Forbes list, owner of multiple endeavours, part of the Heron Group. And it was all part of the casino's drive to attract uh, high rolling mainland Chinese players, because traditionally over the years it had relied upon Middle Eastern business. And in fact, the club is owned by Paul Suen, who is the, the famous businessman who also acquired and, and is now the owner of Birmingham City Football Club. So, I mean, it, it feels like a, a novel or, or a movie, but clearly they are not selecting their players or, or the terms upon which they allow players to gamble, maybe in some different. Mm, that's right. I mean, at the first instance, counsel was unsuccessful in persuading the Deputy High Court judge to grant an injunction, and then they went to the Court of Appeal. And in fact, we have two Lady Justices, and the lead judgment is given by Lady Justice Geraldine Andrews. And really, it turns about what, what does real mean? Is real more than fanciful? Do you import some sort of likelihood into the test? Is there some gloss you ought to apply? Real in the context of a, a real risk of dissipation of assets for, for a freezing injunction. Indeed, yes. But what is real? What is the solid evidence that you have to rely on? So everyone knows the test as set out in the leader's axiom, but is there some way in which you can add some sort of probability to it? So is the fact that he dishonoured checks, is the fact that he has the wherewithal to pay but doesn't, is the fact that there is some evidence, I mean, I think there was some evidence in this case about a, a restructuring that had gone on on one of his companies that was held by an offshore structure. Is that That's something right. which yeah. somehow raises the, the level of probability? And should you have some sort of probability test? And the judge was quite clear that it wasn't a particularly helpful gloss to try and something to the test. So while it obviously real means something more than fanciful, you, you, you don't say, well, it is more likely than not that he will use his, his offshore structures or the way in which he has structured his affairs in a way to dissipate his assets. 
And in light of this Court of Appeal judgment, it's made me reflect over the years on, on how I have framed the claim for relief in a, a summons or application for an injunction, because I've often used, for example, the word propensity, and I have sort of sought to list in the evidence and the skeleton argument, oh, the respondent in this case has a propensity, you know, for dissipating assets, uh, all sorts of behaviours. And actually, Lady Justice Andrews makes the point that propensity is about a historical behaviour. It doesn't actually help assist the court in determining whether there is a risk now. And I, I thought that was very interesting. She even seemed to not like the nomenclature propensity, as if it clouded the intellectual analysis. Indeed. I mean, I think it's often the case that sometimes people think, well, and certainly I've, I've had experiences where um, judges can take the view, well, you get over the threshold just about. I'm not really sure whether there is enough to get over the threshold for real risk, but I think you've got something there. Let's wait on the, until the return date. And obviously at the return date, then you'll have an inter-parties and, and then it can be fought out. And obviously that, that attitude, I think, has been clearly knocked down. I think there was some suggestion in the case where counsel had, had said, well, it's a fairly low threshold in order to grant the relief in the first instance. And I think the Court of Appeal are very keen to say this is one of the nuclear weapons of the armoury that both England and the BVI have. And it shouldn't be handed out simply where on an ex-party application you're interfering with people's rights to use their assets. You have to analyse each of the elements of the test in a rigorous fashion. There's a sort of philosophical dilemma here, isn't there? There are parts of the judgment that almost make it sound as if it's... I mean, let's not forget that the, the defendant is, is actually a judgment debtor, that the casino had won. This is a, you know, a post-judgment injunction that they're applying for. But the way in which the judgment is written is very strongly holding that actually there's an important distinction between a defendant who can pay but refuses to pay until he's forced to do so. And then a defendant who's so determined not to pay that he would take active steps to frustrate by dissipating assets. And so it almost sounds philosophically that defendants almost have a right to refuse to pay it un until forced to do so. And I, that doesn't sit entirely comfortably with me, I have to say. Yes, I mean, I think there is sometimes a view has been expressed, well, if you're post-judgment, then it's easier to get a freeze injunction. And that clearly isn't the case. It's, it's simply a factor that you have a judgment. Yeah. Uh, equally, the, the fact that you, you have a debt, and if the debt is undisputed, the fact that there is a debt isn't sufficient to say, therefore, there's a risk of dissipation simply because you have a debt, because otherwise, in every case, you'd have a, a freeze injunction granted where there's a debt claim. And I, I agree with you that query is the court approaching this in a fashion which the practitioners would say is not reflective of the realities of commercial life. If mm. you have a if you have a case where you have a defendant who has the wherewithal to pay is refusing to pay and simply says, "I'm going to put you to the expense of trying to find my assets," you know, catch me if you can, Scarlet Pimpernel style. Um, <laughs> is correct. that really reflective of the realities of commercial cut and thrust? But mm. clearly, the courts want to emphasise the fact that this is a very extreme measure that you're taking and you have to satisfy the judge that there is solid evidence. There's a whole list of factors that have been set out in G and one of them obviously is the fact of the use of offshore structures and the ease with which somebody could transfer and you'll often see judges referring to 
the, the fact, particularly in England, uh, well, the defendant has the ability to transfer assets and there's no visibility. And that, that is something which can be taken into account. But the weight to which that's given, in this case, there was no evidence that he had transferred funds out of any of any of the bank accounts. In the, in the, in the Saudi case, the previous case of the, the previous year, the evidence was that one of the points was made, well, this is an individual whose assets are in Saudi Arabia, it's difficult to enforce there. And the point was made, well, you know, the casino knew that when they signed him up as a customer, they, they knew where his assets were. So in a sense, it is, I agree with you that there is a certain amount of discomfort as a practitioner, because you want to be able to say to the clients, there is this debt, they clearly have the assets to pay, they're not paying, this must be indicative of some behaviour. But the court has clearly said that's not the right, right approach. And I thought the Court of Appeal, they do mention the, the offshore structures because counsel obviously raised it as a ground for appeal. And I, I thought it was dealt with very fairly. The judge says, well, I accept that authorities demonstrate that the nature of, of the assets, the ease which they can be moved, as well as the use of offshore or corporate structures are all relevant to, to consideration of the risk of dissipation. As you say, you know, goes to wait. I think we're certainly past the days when having an offshore structure in, of itself in itself to be mm. problematic particularly with i mean this is a, a man of significant forbes listed means of course he's going to have legitimate offshore structures and the other one is is of course the gambling i mean it's I, we, you and i Peter, have represented a number of clients in in gambling cases in, in macau where gambling is legal as the only place in China, and Macau is obviously a special administrative region of China, it's the only place in China where, where gambling is lawful. So the rest of China, as far as I understand, so this Court of Appeal judgment suggests, you know, a, a gambling debt would be unenforceable. So it, it, it creates an interesting sort of public policy dilemma. If, if in fact the judgment can't be enforced in, in China, then the argument that there are assets, you know, obviously within the English jurisdiction or somewhere where it could be enforced, may take on more weight but again it's, it's just a factor In, indeed it is just a factor and then and then the judge has to look at everything in the round and weigh up all the factors decide whether it is a real risk of solid evidence and i mean this idea going back to your very good point about i mean <laughs> the crux of this case being don't put a gloss uh, stop putting a gloss you practitioners is essentially what it's saying on real risk of dissipation the other side of the coin of real risk of dissipation which often i think i've erroneously written comma more than merely fanciful is now to be deleted from our submissions i suppose yes i suppose this this idea of more than merely fanciful i mean it comes from a summary judgment style submissions so you know on good arguable case there has been the canada trust case there's been lots lots of discussion right. about what is the gloss that should be applied should there be a gloss should there not be a gloss and i think what they're trying to do is to say you know the words these judgments are are not to be construed as if they're some sort of statute you're not to sort of use some sort of interpretive approach to what real risk and solid evidence means it simply is a, a guidance given to judges and to claimants to decide do you have sufficient evidence to prove that there, there is going to be a risk that the award or judgment will go unsatisfied? And again, I think they emphasise in this, in this judgment, or it may have been actually the, the earlier judgment, that when you're looking at a risk of not being satisfied, you don't have to say on a balance of probabilities, it is more likely than not that it will be not satisfied. That's right. Yeah. It's simply the lower threshold of real risk. <laughs> doesn't mean more than fensible. Well, it's, it doesn't mean more than fensible in certain circumstances. <laughs> This is all now being brought into alignment with secure, the test for security for costs, because, of course, that is just it's a very similar analogue to an injunction. Yes, I think actually there is a reference 
to the security for tests, a super security for cost test in this judgment. Well, there is. No, I don't um, want to claim that as my own thinking. Oh. That's, that's entirely the Court of Appeal of England and Wales, I can assure you. Well, it's interesting that it, that, it was, that it was Lady Justice Gloucester, because they referred to Bezfort developments, and then yes. heard the leading judgment by Lady Justice Gloucester, who was also the same judge in Holyoke. And Holyoke right. obviously is also referred to in, in this judgment, which was the notification injunction, where I think the argument was made, well, it's a lower threshold, you don't have to necessarily prove risk, and, and that was clearly knocked on its head as well. That's out the window now. You, you, you can't get a sort of lesser injunction for a lesser risk of dissipation. It's, it's a binary question as to risk of dissipation, and then you get an appropriate injunction. I, I thought that was a very good lesson to us all, because it, it's easy to fall into that little trap, actually. Peter, I know you're about to fly off. You've probably got an injunction or two to do yourself today. Thank you very much for your time. A great fun case with fun facts. And although a very short case, content rich with every paragraph being very interesting, I'd recommend it to our readers. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.